Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. I'm going to entitle this section, Faith Without Works is Dead. This is a very famous passage of Scripture. Our context is this. In the first 13 verses of James 2, James talked about the sin of partiality and not shaming a poor brother when he comes into church by favoring the rich. So we start now in James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? Now, the first question we ask is, why did James bring that up all of a sudden after he finishes talking about the sin of partiality? Well, perhaps he's suggesting that those who show partiality are not doing works. It should go with the professed faith of these Christians who are showing partiality. I suspect that's what it is. And you notice that... James says if someone says he has faith, just because someone says he has faith, that doesn't mean he actually has faith. It's a profession only. If someone says he has faith but does not have works, what good is it? Now, he says he has faith. This means that this is not a true faith. This is a fake faith. And James uses this word in a different sense than Paul uses it, because when Paul uses it, he means a justifying faith. It's heartfelt belief trust in Jesus, personal trust in Jesus. This is a mere fake faith. This is the way James is using it. And because James is using the word in a different sense than Paul, a lot of people say, see there, there's a contradiction between James and Paul. In fact, Martin Luther famously condemned James as an epistle of straw because he seemed to be emphasizing works too much. You know, that's the way theology is, isn't it? You get too focused on one thing and you forget the balance. And Luther was focusing on justification by faith to contradict the works righteousness of the Catholic Church, and so he couldn't handle what James was saying. Well, it's in the Scripture. He, fortunately, James, Luther was not able to get James thrown out of the canon. It's a good book. There is no contradiction between James and Paul. If someone says he has faith, it's a fake faith. It's a professed faith. It's not true. One reason we know that Paul and James couldn't be contradicting each other is both of them were at the Jerusalem Council, and both of them signed... Uh, well, they agreed with the letter that was sent out to the whole church dealing with this same issue of faith and works. Basically, the Jerusalem Council says we're not justified by works, but we're going to, in order to, as a matter of expediency, to keep people from stumbling, we're going to put a few rules on the Gentile Christians to keep the Jewish brothers from stumbling, but we're going to be very clear about it. We're not justified by works. You recall Titus was brought to that council, and he was a Gentile, and Paul said, I'm not going to circumcise him because it would give a wrong impression. So what James's contradiction is not the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith. He's condemning the abuse of salvation by faith alone. It's the abuse of it, a fake faith. So if someone says he has faith but does not have work, can that faith save him? No, because it's not truly faith. James is not disagreeing with salvation by faith alone. He is disagreeing with salvation with faith that is alone. That's a standard formulation. You can remember that explains the difference very nicely and succinctly. Now, true faith can exist, cannot even exist without works. A dead intellectual faith can exist without works. Now, this was a Jewish tendency to have dead intellectual faith because of their love for the law. They would think they had faith because they gave mental assent to the law, and James is trying to contradict that Jewish tendency. Folks, let's face it, if someone actually believes in Christ for salvation, he is going to start doing good works. He can't help it because he's growing the fruit that flows out of his new nature, which is the nature of Christ, which is the very image of Christ. And so you're going to start doing good works because Jesus did good works. Now, if you think that James contradicts Paul about this good works business, let's consider four passages from Paul. and Let's see what Paul said about doing good works. 
Romans 2.13, For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. Whoa, the doers of the law? Romans 2.23, You who boast in the, in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Paul says, I want you to keep the law. I want you to do good works. Titus 2.14, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do what? Eager to do good works. So Christ's people for his own possession should be eager to do good works. That's Titus 2.14. Titus 3.8, This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to what? devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. So to say that Paul is opposed to good works is nonsense. He he is he believes that good works are not the root of your salvation. However, they are the fruit of your salvation. And James believes exactly the same thing because after James keeps talking about how we're justified by by works and not by faith alone, by, we're not justified by faith that doesn't have works. Later on, he's going to quote the very verse that Paul quotes all the time about Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So James believed that you're saved by faith and not works. He was at the Jerusalem Council, remember, one of the leaders, which stated that fundamental proposition, we're not saved by works. Can that faith save him again? This is the false faith, the fake faith, the dead intellectual faith that has no commitment and heartfelt devotion behind it. To Jesus, can that faith save him? Well, the answer is it's a rhetorical question. The answer, of course, is no, it cannot. I mean, after all, the demons believe and are damned. Matthew 8, 29. This is the demons in the Gadarene demoniac being referenced here. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? They openly confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Well, obviously those demons weren't saved, but they believed that Jesus was the Son of God. Well, that's just a mere intellectual belief. It's not a belief in the sense that I'm going to follow you, Jesus. So we go now to James 2, verses 15, 16, and 17. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. Faith without works is dead. Now, this example of false faith without works parallels the Apostle John's example of false love without works. 1 John 3.17, we read this. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes to his need, how can God's love reside in him? So you can say you love somebody, but if they're in trouble and you don't do anything to help them, love is action, folks. It ain't just profession of words. It's action. And it's not just feeling either. It's action. You do something for somebody. What good is that kind of faith when you see somebody hungry and you don't help them, you don't feed them? Their empty words of their profession of faith will be as profitable to the poor brothers and sisters as these false brothers with fake faith. It will be as unprofitable to the poor brothers and sisters as the empty professions of faith of these false brothers will be profitable to them at the day of judgment, as Adam Clark says. Empty words don't help people hurting and hungry, and empty words don't help you on the day of judgment. Faith without works is dead. Now, that famous phrase is mentioned here in verse 17. It's also mentioned again in verse 26. James chapter 2, verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. 
It doesn't exist. It's dead in the sense that it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean it's dead in the sense that it was alive and then all of a sudden it died. No, it never existed to start with. Because you, faith is like a coin. Faith and works are like a coin. You got a heads and you got a tail. The coin cannot exist without a heads and without a tail. Otherwise, it's, it just can't exist. Likewise, faith can't exist unless works follow from the faith. We go now to James chapter 2, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. Now, someone will say, this is, of course, someone that James does not agree with, a hypothetical someone. And what they say is, as according to the NIV Study Bible, what this person is falsely saying is that there are faith Christians and works Christians. So there are some Christians who have faith and some Christians who do works. And it doesn't work that way. You can't have one without the other. Well, you can't have faith without works. You can have works without faith. Faith and works cannot exist independently of each other. So this sub-person says this, you have faith and I have works, trying to divorce the two. And James immediately refutes that hypothetical complaint and says, look, show me your faith without works. It doesn't exist. Show it to me. You can't do it. He's being sarcastic. You can't show me that. It doesn't work. Or unless he's using faith in the false sense, he's saying, show me your dead intellectual faith without works. And I don't care about that because I'm going to show you faith from my works. In other words, I'm going to show you a living, active faith that has works following on. Now, some people say that James is not being sarcastic here when he says, show me your faith without works. I believe he is, though. NIV Study Bible agrees with me. He knows, James knows nobody can do that. Show me faith without works. And so he's being ironic here. And Gil goes even further and says that James is using a sort of sarcasm and jest. And I think that's what he's saying. Show me your faith without works. You moron, and I will show you faith from my works. James 2.19, you believe that God is one. Again, he's talking to this hypothetical false faith person. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. A lot of Jews believe this intellectually. God is one. They were constantly quoting the Shema, the Hebrew creed from Deuteronomy 6.4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one God. Over and over again, they quote the Shema. And then James says, well, you do well to do that. Well, and Jesus quoted the Shema to himself in Mark 12, 29. This is the most important, Jesus answered. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, of course, there's nothing we believe in that. Jesus himself said it. But it's wrong to just believe it and just leave it at that. It's an intellectual belief. It's a belief in your head. Yeah, you believe it's true, but you don't act on it. And James says, you do well. It's a good thing to believe that God is one. Now, some people say he's still being sarcastic here, and some people say he's being straight. Yeah, you, you do well to believe that God is one. My opinion, I think he's being a little sarcastic. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown don't seem to think so. They say that James is just saying, now look, I'm not complaining about your belief that God is one. Nothing wrong with intellectual belief that's correct, as long as it doesn't stop there. It's got to keep going into a heartfelt, disciple-like, a fellowship faith, if you will. Now, James gives an example of somebody who believes just intellectually. Demons. The demons also believe and they shudder. Mark 5, 7, this is with the Gadarene demoniac. And he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus? This is the demon in the Gadarene demoniac. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. So this demon confessed that Jesus was the son of the almighty God, the most high God. So the demon believed. So James is saying, look, you have this intellectual faith that you believe that God is one, but your heart ain't with him. You ain't any better than a demon. That's basically what he's saying. The demons have the same kind of belief you do. 
and they shudder because that demon was saying, oh, God, don't torment me. So he, that demon was scared. And so, and so James is saying to the one with a false intellectual faith, you ain't any better than a frightened demon getting ready to be chased into hell by the Son of God. You want to be like that? I don't think so. We go to verse 20, James 2. Foolish man, again, James is talking to the hypothetical critic of his doctrine of faith and works. Foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Now, the NIV note has a note that says, the NIV version has a note that says, some early manuscripts say dead. So, are you willing to learn that faith without works is dead? Well, he's already said faith without works is dead. It's twice in this passage. Here he says it's useless. It doesn't matter either way. Most of the English translations, by the way, have useless. Faith without works is useless. It doesn't do you any good. Same thing as a you know, you got a dead dog. The dog doesn't do you any good. It's, it's a close concept. The King, King James Version and the New King James Version have dead. Faith without works is dead. Useless. We'll take useless here. Are you willing to learn that, you stupid man, you foolish man, who says that you can have faith without works? Now, this is a rhetorical question because James didn't think this hypothetical moron was willing to learn. That's why he called him a foolish man. And by the way, Remember when Jesus said, he who says you're a fool is guilty of hellfire? I've often wondered about that. Well, wait a minute here. James is calling somebody a fool, you foolish man. Paul did the same thing, you foolish Galatians. Well, the way you reconcile that is Jesus is talking to Pharisees who were using the word as a word of hatred when they were denouncing their opponents. James is using the word in an objective sense. You are a foolish man to believe something like that. We go down to verse 21, James 2. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Ah, now we have justification by works. Doesn't Protestant doctrine and doesn't Martin Luther and all those guys and Calvin say that we're justified by faith? Or we're justified by grace through faith, not by works? I mean, we we repeat that like a mantra. And here this James is going around saying, our father Abraham was justified by works. See there? There's a contradiction with Paul. Now this bothered me for years until it was pointed out to me, and it should have been pointed out to me a lot earlier than I finally grabbed a hold of it, is James is using the word justified in an ambiguous sense, a different sense than Paul was using it. When Paul said we're justified by grace through faith, he was using the term to mean we are declared legally righteous before God by grace not by works. When James uses the word justified, he's using the word in the sense of we are vindicated or we show that we're that we're innocent. For example, if your son comes home with a bad score in his math test and he promises he is going to study more and I say to him, justify yourself, son. Show me that you're going to study harder. Come back with a higher grade to show, to justify. That's the sense that James is using it. I'm not, when I tell my son, justify yourself and come back with a higher grade, I'm not saying, declare yourself legally righteous before God. Obviously not. It's a different word. The English is confusing. Wayne Grudem has a good discussion of this in his famous systematic theology, if you want to read that further. But that's the simple way to reconcile it, just like that. Not only do we know that Paul, that James is using the word justified in a different sense than Paul, we also know from the context that James was not talking about being declared legally before legally righteous before God, justified before God. He's not using the word in that sense because he's not saying that you're 
declared legally righteous before God by your works because in verse 23, right here in the same chapter in our same section here, James 2, James says this, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Well, that's the famous justification by faith alone passage. It comes from Genesis 15:6, which says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. Belief is the same thing as faith. It's a synonym, actually. And it's certainly not works. So Abraham believed the Lord. It didn't say Abraham was declared righteous before God. He was justified before God because of the works he did. No. So James is quoting the very famous justification by faith alone verse that Paul quoted several times, I think in Galatians and Romans. Notice that Abraham's faith in God was exercised before his good work. What was his good work? When he offered up Isaac through faith on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice, when Isaac was the only hope of the promise of blessing and seed to the descendants to Abraham, the only way that promise was going to be fulfilled, Abraham went ahead and offered him anyway. That was his work. He justified his faith, his previously held faith. He justified it. He showed it. He vindicated that faith by putting Isaac up on the altar. There is no contradiction. We go now to verses 22 and 23. You see that faith was active together with his works. Again, he's talking about Abraham and Isaac. You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Faith was, was active together with his works. Again, James is trying to show that faith and works cannot be divided. They go together. He says they're active together. You can't have one without the other. This is reflected in Hebrews 11:17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So you see the faith. By faith, he was tested, and then he offered up Isaac. He did something. He showed his faith. He vindicated his faith by his work. He received the promises, and he was offering his unique son. So faith was active, and by works, faith was perfected. Perfected means to make complete. It does not, of course, mean without one flaw, because nobody has perfect faith, unless it's Jesus. But it means to be made complete, to grow up, to be mature. In other words, completed is the best way to look at it. You got faith, it has to be completed with works. If you don't see any works, you better doubt the faith ever existed to start with, because faith without works is dead. I said that this verse... Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness is quoted all over the place. Let me give you some examples. Of course, it comes from Genesis 15:6, which I've already read to you. Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him his righteousness. Paul says in Romans 4, 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him for righteousness. Galatians 3, 6, just as Abraham believed God and was credited to him for righteousness. It's very important in Paul's theology, but it's Quoted by James, too. It's not like James doesn't believe it, just like Paul does. So, Abraham's faith was perfected. It was He, just, he was justified by his works. It was credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. That relationship showed that God completely accepted Abraham, because when you have a friend, you completely accept them. Abraham was actually not called a friend of God during his lifetime, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. However, afterwards, he was called a friend of God, we read in Second Chronicles 20, verse 7, Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and who gave it before your people Israel and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? The friend of God. We're called friends of God. I think it's in Romans somewhere. I forgot exactly where it was. We used to be enemies. Now we're friends. Abraham is our exemplar 
in that aspect of our spiritual lives. James chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That that verse right there sounds like it directly contradicts Paul, but it does not. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, we've already talked about justified. A man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James means he's not vindicated. He doesn't show his faith by merely having faith by itself by merely having an intellectual assent by itself. But if you have a heart faith, a discipleship faith, a true faith in Christ, then you will grow some fruit and you will show some work. And then that will show that you have faith and you will be justified. You'll be vindicated. He does not mean you will be declared legally righteous before God by your works because you haven't got a single work that will take care of your sins because all of your righteousness is a filthy cotex, as Isaiah said. Dirty rags, menstrual rags, that's what your works are. Forget about trying to prove yourself before God. Just believe in him, and then all of a sudden the fruit will grow naturally. Your good works, you'll you'll change your attitudes, your hatred, your prejudices, your lack of forgiveness, your bitterness, your alcoholism, your homosexual tendencies, your lust, whatever. Your lust for money, your greed for power. You'll be amazed at how your attitude will change. And in the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works? Again, her faith was shown by her works. What were her works, by the way? Well, her work was to mislead the Canaanites and to protect the spies. Joshua was trying to come into Israel. The land of Canaan is full, full of Canaanites who don't like the Israelites. The spies came to her inn on the walls of Jericho, and they said, we would like to know what's going on here. And she had a choice to make. She could betray her the Canaanites amongst whom she lived, or she could say, oh, we've heard about what God did at the Exodus. I believe in your God, and I'm going to protect these spies. And she did. She hit them up on top of the roof of her inn when the Canaanite officials came in looking for them. She hit them, and then she sent them out by a different route. They sent them out by a window, if I remember correctly, and they went back to the Israelites. She protected the spies. That was her works. And so she proved that she had faith in the God of Israel when she did that. Again, she justified by works. That does not contradict Romans 3.28 when Paul says, Well, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Again, two different senses of the word. Paul is saying a man is not declared legally righteous before God by faith apart from works. That ain't, that's not what James is saying. When it says Rahab sent them out by a different route, that means different than the front door that they came in. They came in through the front door, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Then they left through a window in the wall, so that was a different route. They went back to the Israelites. By the way, Rachel lied to do this, and she was a prostitute. So she's a liar and a prostitute, and yet she's justified by her faith. Again, it's just talking about the one action of protecting the Israel spy, the Hebrew spies. It was not in any sense meant to justify being a prostitute. And the lying, that's just, a, that's warfare. I mean, you know, this thing about you don't like to lie. So a general should go up to his opposing general in a war and say, hey, this is where I'm going to put my troops here. And this is how I'm going to fight the battle tomorrow. This is my strategy. No. Deception is a part of the rules of the game. And likewise, you got spies and you lies. There's nothing wrong with that. The Hebrew midwives lied to the officials of Pharaoh and they said, well, you know, these babies come out pretty fast. They come out so fast we can't kill these Hebrew babies. So we need to be careful 
That's not situation ethics. We need to be careful about what it means to bear false witness. Rachel is not condemned for her lie. She's not condemned for being a prostitute. Of course, that doesn't mean the scripture likes prostitution. James doesn't approve of the occupation. He just mentions it. But it is noteworthy that a prostitute can exercise faith. That shows that Jesus can forgive anybody. I mean, Paul was a judicial murderer. He persecuted them even to the death, as he says at the end of Acts somewhere. Persecuted Christians to the death. That's why he said he was the least apostle, because he did that in another place. Rahab's a prostitute. Jesus can forgive anybody. I don't care. You go into jail. I don't care what they're in jail for. Jesus can forgive any sin. Now, she was a prostitute. The Greek word is porne, and it seems to me that would be dispositive to prove that Rahab was indeed a prostitute. However, I just finished going through the book of Hebrews, and when I got to the name Rahab, I went through a big discussion between those who say she was a prostitute and she was not a prostitute. Many people like to argue argue she was merely an innkeeper. And since a lot of innkeeper, a lot of inns were houses of prostitution, it's kind of like massage parlors in China, therefore she was a prostitute. And they say just because she was an innkeeper doesn't mean she was a prostitute. Well, that might be so. But I'm telling you here, the word porne, there's no question about it. I looked it up just to be sure. It means prostitute. Pornos is a male prostitute, and porne, the feminine, is a female prostitute. Now, here's what Ellicott says about this tendency to try to soften the blow for, for dear Rahab. Quote, the evil name of the poor woman's unhappy trade cannot truthfully be softened down to innkeeper, nor even idolater. No kidding. Thank you, Mr. Ellicott. She was a prostitute, and I'm sure she quit being a prostitute after she became acquainted with the, uh, the God Yahweh. We need to remember, Jesus can forgive prostitutes. That's a nasty business, but Jesus, it's like being a lawyer, you know? Jesus can forgive lawyers. It's like being a tax collector. He can forgive a tax collector, and he can forgive prostitutes. It's like being a politician. He can forgive politicians. Excuse my cynicism. Now think about what Rahab did. She lied to the Canaanites who asked her where Israel's two spies were. And so the spies survived. The Canaanites left. The spies left out the window, down the wall, back to the Israelites, and the Israelites successfully conquered Canaan. Think about this. If she had not protected those Israelite spies at Jericho, would the Israelites have ever entered the promised land? I don't think so. Probably not. And then Jesus would not have had the opportunity to be born. So what Rachel, what Rahab did was of extreme importance. So we need to be thankful for that prostitute. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with Hebrews chapter 2, excuse me, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Faith without works is dead. Faith is justified by works in the sense that faith is vindicated by works. Very important doctrine. In our next audio, we're going to take up James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, which I will call Taming the Tongue. James is real big on this. Remember at the end of chapter 1, We had a section, verses 16 through 27, how not to be hung by the tongue. And now we're going to talk about taming the tongue. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.